Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present an encore presentation of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are um, in the second of what may end up being a three-part series, Francis, in all fairness, looking at the material that you've gathered for our conversation today on uh, Herman Cohen. Herman Cohen was a famous pianist uh, throughout Europe, studied under Franz Liszt, uh, but later, and we're going to talk about that today, went through a conversion experience and um, became Catholic, and then uh, later still became a Carmelite friar, a Carmelite monk. And we actually talked about him on our last live broadcast when we connected him with Lourdes and St. Bernadette. And so. we'll cover that quickly, I think, again today, just so that we, we sort of you know, re-establish um, our listeners in that experience, the miracle that occurred at Lourdes, one of the earlier um, miracles, in fact, at Lourdes. Um, but today is largely about providing the sort of panoramic view of his life, um, and the experiences that led up to his conversion and then what happened afterward. In fact, I called this program From Player to Priest because of the Eucharist, the extraordinary conversion story of Herman Cohen and his becoming a Carmelite. And by player, you mean... Piano player. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get a catchy title there, you yeah. know. <laughs> Although he was a bit of a, what would we say, uh, a roustabout. He a, was also uh, a player out in the field, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. That's the part so of his life So it kind of has a pun, behind. you know, yeah. <laughs> both, both sides of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm looking forward to getting into the material. There are a number of wonderful co- uh, quotes from uh, Herman Cohen himself, Father Herman. Um, and we'll use that phrase as well as uh, Father Cohen or... Or Father, his name and religion was actually Father Augustine Mary of the Blessed Sacrament. So we might use all three of those interchangeably. Yeah, but we're only talking about one person. <laughs> right. Uh, but let's begin, uh, as we do each week, with a prayer. All right. And this is a prayer that comes from words penned by Herman Cohen. And then I found it in a book called Herman, Flower of Israel by Don Amadeo Rodino. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Jesus, my Eucharistic King, in the desert of my life you appeared to me. You manifested your splendor, your greatness, your beauty. You changed my life and dispersed all my enemies. You made my soul hungry for the bread of life and thirsty for your precious blood. Well, I remember the day you gave yourself entirely to me. My heart was beating fast, and I could hardly breathe. I feared that my excitement would disturb you while resting within my soul. Now that I possess you, let me say what I find in you. Jesus Christus Hodie, Jesus Christ is today in the Divine Eucharist. Can we pronounce this word without feeling a sweet honey on our lips, a burning fire through our veins? Divine Eucharist, our tongue is inarticulate. Only our hearts have a secret sigh. Jesus Christ, today. I am weak today. I need help from above to stand on my feet. Jesus, coming from heaven, is made bread of the strong. I am poor today. I need a shelter. And Jesus becomes the house of God, the celestial threshold, the Eucharist. I am hungry and thirsty today. I need food to restore my heart, and Jesus becomes wheat of the elect. Yes, 
I love Jesus. I love the Eucharist. Jesus today means Jesus with me. This morning at the altar, he came to me. He is mine. I adore him. I have taken hold and I will not let go. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Francis, I'm going to turn tables on you a little bit here today and say, um, you know, this is a great topic. I'm obviously convinced of the the compelling um, you know, details of the story. But for our listeners' benefit, you've got a, a series of, uh, I think, uh, interesting uh, statements here regarding his life. So let me begin with a question. Why is this a compelling story? What, what does it matter that this uh, mid-1800s uh, pianist, uh, who albeit converted and became a, a Carmelite, that's the direct connection, but why should we be so interested in his life story? Well, I'll tell you how I found him interesting, and I hope that our listeners will also find it that way, too. Uh, for me, I, I was a musician. I played in the symphony orchestras professionally. And so to hear that there was a Carmelite that, who was a professional musician was intriguing. And his conversion from this great fame throughout all of Europe and great fortune down to ground zero, desperation, and back to the heights, I found to be very interesting. And then the importance of the Eucharist in his life was so huge, and his actual conversion is very much centered on the Eucharist. And, you know, um, he was a Jewish person, but they were rather liberal, and um, so he wasn't a solid practicing Jew, but he had a lot of regard for the Jewish faith and um, a lot of love for mystery and the infinite. And so he was grounded in some of these mysteries. And I think those tapes replayed throughout his life. And my good friend Francesca Franchina always tells me, and when we're talking about rearing kids and how much will they remember what, what you're trying to teach them about the faith, she always tells me, don't worry, Francis, the tapes will play. The tapes will replay. In other words, that, you know, they will remember. Um, some of these essential things that will carry them through in times of trial. Well, you know, you bring out another interesting point here in this discussion, and that is the true and genuine understanding of freedom. Now, Herman Cohen experienced a transition from what we would all, many of us might presume, to have been great freedom. He was wealthy. He was a child prodigy as a, as a very young musician. And His an, course was set. And an intellectual <laughs> on top of all that. And he was able to travel throughout Europe. He had money. He had means. He had fame. He was well-liked. Uh, we would think this is sort of an ideal model. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there was a darkness and a, and a despair and a depression that he was carrying with him. And when he made his conversion and he transitioned into the life that we're going to talk about, uh, he said, this is true freedom. This is yes. real freedom. It, it really is a story about human freedom from the bondage of your senses, from the bondage of fame and prestige and power and um, influence and um also a very hedonistic lifestyle. He, he was in bondage through sin, and he lost sight of those seeds of the faith. And when he was hitting bottom, um, then he began to see how enslaved he was. So really, 
this the dignity and the freedom of the human person doesn't come from power, prestige, wealth, or even state laws, but it comes from God who created us in his own image and likeness as free men and women. And so, you know, we ask, okay, well, what is this freedom? And I read this from one of the Moscow patriarchs. He said, freedom doesn't mean free to do as we please, which is moral anarchy, but it means the liberation of the human person from the power of sin, the enslavement of the passions, the reflexes, the instincts. It is the inner freedom founded on the observance of God's commandments. And boy, that hit me because I'm like drilling this into my kids. You know what those Ten Commandments are? There are guidelines into freedom, freedom and happiness. They're not uh, rules that you have to abide by so that you'll be enslaved. They're actually freeing. They're not restrictions, as so many people tend to think of them. You know, we grow up with this childlike perspective on the faith that, well, you know, my uh, Catholicism or my Christian walk is all about following the rules and then getting a scorecard. And at the end, if my score is good enough, I get to go home. Of course, you know, as we mature, we come to realize that's not the case. But we may still carry some of that perspective that um, the, the Ten Commandments or what we appear to be infringement to our freedoms, uh, those things that call us to virtue, that ask us to uh, refrain from engaging our passions, they may be perceived as limitations on our freedom. In fact, they are the very things that free us. And someone like Herman Cohen, I think, can speak to that so eloquently because he saw both sides of the coin to its fullest extent. Yes. You know, so many of us live, um, um, as uh, Thoreau said, lives of quiet desperation where we may aspire to achieve certain things in our life, but we don't quite get there. Here's a man who really genuinely had everything that the world had to offer um, and at the same time knew there was an emptiness. And when he went through his conversion, he said, now I'm free. And in fact, he has a very eloquent uh, uh, sermon that he gives on that. And he talks about, um, you know, how he had um, enjoyed all the pleasures he was speaking in Paris, as you recall the story. And he said to the um, people in the cathedral, I've enjoyed all the pleasures that this city has to offer, Paris. Uh, I've, you know, sinned for many years in this city. I know what it's like to live on that side of the equation. Uh, he said, trust me, my friends, this is not happiness. This is not freedom. Yeah, and that reminded me of what um, the late Pope John Paul II had said about freedom. He said, freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. And so as we talk about Herman Cohen's conversion, um, I think you'll see this theme of being freed from the passions and being free to know who he is made in the image and likeness of God. Well, just to set the historical context of his life and some of the key events, uh, Francis, let's go through just the details. We'll go through it quickly, um, put it in um, in context for our listeners, and then we'll go into some of these in greater detail. He was born on uh, 10 November 1821 in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, we will say how this came about, but he died on 20 January 1871 in Berlin. So he's 49 years old. Yeah. So, uh, you know, nonetheless, a fairly young person by our, our uh, standards, but accomplished a lot in those 49 years. Yes. And um, his last name actually 
Kohen means priest in the Jewish tradition. In fact, uh, his lineage was said to be traced back to the tribe of Aaron, and they took a lot of pride in that. And um, he came from this Jewish family, but they were more liberal. Uh, they, but they did teach their son Hebrew and the basics of the Jewish faith. And, and this was important because it cultivated his love for mystery and the infinite. And, you know, he used to watch the, the, uh, priest in the synagogues, you know, and, you know, it just would catch his breath. And, you know, he, he was sent to a Protestant school, um, and so he was heckled a lot as a Jewish boy. Um, so he put up with a lot, but he was really bright and he was very gifted. Yeah, he began <clears throat> studying piano at the young age of four. And by 12, his mother takes him to Paris to advance his musical career, something his father was against. As you described it to me, uh, you know, musicians weren't necessarily the most honored um, uh, individuals in society. Certainly they were valued, but they were more subservient to their patrons and yeah, so forth and, at that and time. Yeah, and he comes from a family that, you know, had a lineage of wealthy bankers. And, and so this was not going to be something that was going to make a lot of money. Well, he's denied entrance to the Paris Conservatory, but eventually uh, finds his way to Franz Liszt, who initially rejects him as a student, but after hearing him play, he takes him on as a student and he rises very quickly to become uh, List's number one student. In fact, List uh, puts him in charge of some of his younger students uh, so that Herman Cohen can help them along. Yes, and if you remember, Franz Liszt was a Hungarian composer, um, well-known, wrote lots and lots of famous works. Uh, he was a virtuoso pianist himself and a conductor, and he knew people like, oh, I'm going to put this in framework for the musicians out there, Beethoven, Schubert. He was friends with Hector Berlioz and Frederick Chopin and, and Richard Wagner. So you get an idea of the setting. Now, Cohen's rise to fame as a child prodigy pianist who this virtuoso concert penis now propels him to be traveling all over Europe. But along with the fame comes some depression. Yeah, he gets involved in uh, a gambling addiction. He's leading a very hedonistic lifestyle. You can use your own imagination as to what he may have been involved in. Uh, he accumulates great debt. He's spiritually empty. Um, and he senses this ongoing spiritual call. And I think, Francis, you... You um, introduced this idea when you said that his mother was uh, concerned about exposing him to the, the basics of the Jewish faith, which, of course, have a great deal of mystery and an appreciation for uh, the mystical element of our life and the realization that there's something going on uh, at a much deeper level. And, and then something else about his childhood is because he was so talented more than his other brothers that, um, you know, he actually became very much of a, a tyrant of the family, a spoiled brat, and everybody catered to him because, you know, of his giftedness. And how many families out there might have one child that is excelling at something and then the brothers and sisters are, you know, grumbling because they're not getting the attention. So, you know, you have that scenario going on here. And also because they went to Paris to try to get into Paris Conservatory, which he couldn't because he wasn't French. That's why he couldn't get in. It wasn't because he wasn't good enough, because he certainly was. He was far better than many of those that were in there. Um, but he wasn't French. So um, Franz Liszt actually had the same experience. He couldn't get into the Paris Conservatory for the same reason. So Franz Liszt had a compassionate heart, and he takes him on as a student because of all of that, but, you know, mainly because he was so very good. Um, but, you know, he doesn't have a father figure. 
now because his mother has taken him out of the home and gone to Paris with him. So his relationship with his father has, has really been torn apart. So uh, a lot of families can identify with that scenario. So just to close out the biographical sketch, he has a mystical experience that we're going to talk about with regard to um, uh, Catholic uh, sacraments. Um, he is um, later very instrumental in the widespread adoption of nocturnal adoration, specifically for men, yes. uh, which was not the practice. And again, we'll talk about that just briefly. Um, he eventually becomes a discalced Carmelite uh, friar, um, establishes or helps to reestablish the strength of the Carmelite order in both France and England, and becomes a very popular preacher throughout all of Europe uh, as a Carmelite. We'll get into some of the details of his life. Just quickly, uh, Francis hit some of the highlights of the people that he either directly uh, came in contact with, we've mentioned Franz Liszt, uh, or some of the other characters that he would have come across in um, his travels in Europe and most especially in Paris. Well, I think this is interesting because, you know, sometimes saints gather together. And, you know, when we read and study about St. Teresa of Alva and St. John of the Cross, you, you come upon a, a, lots of other saints that were in, in their lives. And here with Herman Cohen, um, he meets Father Theodore and Alphonse Radisbon. They were the famous Jewish convert brothers that both became priests and then started a, a movement. Then there's Leo DuPont of the Holy Face Devotion, which we've done programs on. That's in our archives on our Radio Maria web, uh, website. Um, he influenced Louis Martin, Therese's, the, the Little Flower's father, through the adoration. Um, Venerable Marie Therese of the Heart of Jesus, another Discouse Carmelite. Frederick Ozanam, founder of the St. Vincent de Paul Society. Julian Aymar of the Blessed Sacrament Fathers. The Curie of Ars, St. John Vianney. And Who was course, one of his spiritual guides, actually, when he was seeking um, um, you know, admission to a order for uh, entry into religious life. Yeah. And then there's, of course, we mentioned uh, on our last live program about St. Bernadette and the connection to Lourdes. And a while back, we also did a series on St. Raphael Kalinowski, which was a very interesting series. Um, St. Raphael Kalinowski later wrote a biography of Cohen. And um, that, I thought, was very interesting. And, of course, he would have also connected with, with the person that Kalinowski tutored, which also became a blessed, blessed prince, August Sartoriski, um, who was tutored by Kalinowski. Well, you've mentioned the influence that Franz Liszt had. This was a, a revelation to me. Franz Liszt himself was a very deep re religious man, um, gave a great deal of his wealth to uh, charitable initiatives, humanitarian causes, hospitals, schools, uh, musician pension funds. Uh, but he himself, late in life, due to Cohen's uh, influence, uh, became a Franciscan tertiary. I did not know that. Yes. Uh, that, that's uh, encouraging, I guess, that yeah. a great, as great a musician as Liszt. At the end of their life, there's a story about those two walking together, playing piano together again, hmm. and also praying together. Oh. Uh, so it's a very beautiful uh, ending to the story. Well, before we break, let's do the conversion story, because I think this is important. Now, uh, just to set the stage, he's uh, had his great success. He realizes... His life um, really at the core is somewhat empty. He, he goes in and out of bouts of depression. He's not particularly nice to his family any longer, to his mother, even, who has done so much for him. He's got a um, lot of enemies. <laughs> 
people he owes he has money a lot of to. Debts, right. <laughs> but but then he's asked, and I forget the details. Well, let's of this. let let his letter tell it. Yeah. Because um, he's there's a quote here I'd like you to read, Mark, um, where he's describing what's what has happened. This conversion moment. Yeah. So it happened on the month of May last year, 1847, his writing now. So we know this is Mary's month. I just want to key in on that. Mary's month was celebrated with great pomp at the Church of St. Valère, which has since been demolished. Various choirs were playing music and singing, which drew people in. The organizer of the music asked me if I would stand in for him and direct the choir. I agreed and went to take my place purely for my interest in music and a desire to do the job well. During the ceremony, nothing affected me much, but at the moment of benediction, the most powerful moment, these are our yes. words now, Francis. <laughs> Underlined um, that. <laughs> yeah. Though I was not kneeling like the congregation, I felt something deep within me as if I had found myself. It was like the prodigal son facing himself. I was automatically bowing my head. So without really intending to, we see he's now bowing his head. And he's not even understanding why, because he doesn't know what benediction is all about. He doesn't know anything I, about the I Eucharist. I just want to set the context, though, in this um, um, little historical piece. He was asked by, who was it, I forget, to... to uh, take on the choir responsibilities in this church. Yes, right? it, it, he was he, just subbing for that night. Yeah, because of his musical experience and so on yeah, and so forth. Right. So this is how he finds himself in a Catholic ceremony. I just want to set yeah. that context. Okay. He wasn't ex- exactly attending a, a, a Catholic mass. No, he was just there to take over the choir. <laughs> Uh, when I returned the following Friday, he says, the same thing happened. I thought of becoming Catholic almost instantly. A few days late, uh, later, I was passing the same church, this St. Valar, uh, when the bell was ringing for Mass. I went in, and now he is doing it under his own power, of course. He says, I went in and attended Mass with devotion, and I stayed on for several more Masses, <laughs> not understanding what was holding me there. Even when I came home that evening, I was drawn to return. Again, the church bell was ringing and the blessed sacrament was exposed. As soon as I saw it, I felt drawn to the altar rail and knelt down. I bowed my head at the moment of benediction and afterwards I felt a new peace in my heart. I came home and went to bed and felt the same thing in my dreams. From then on, I was anxious to attend Mass often, which I did at St. Valère and always with an inner joy. Yes, what a moment. You know, it kind of reminds me of the... The contemporary story of the conversion of, um, oh gosh, now I'm, I'm forgetting the name, Father Don Calloway. Mm. He also had a moment, uh, coming into the church where there was a big conversion right there. And, um, I, I just kept thinking of him and how much they had in common. But so you know, we, he's very confused about all this. Yeah. So he's got to talk to somebody. We, we see the power though of the Eucharist, not this man wasn't really even seeking. He just happened to be exposed to it. Uh-huh. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it um, has uh, s- such great power to draw us in. And you have to believe that there was a predisposition anyway by virtue of the sort of state of despair that he found himself in. And the hunger for the mystical, the hunger for something. But, I, you know, I'm sure it was grace that just flooded him at that time. There, There's something there in, pres- in the presence of the Lord. And he's not even aware, but he's receiving that grace. Well, you said he was confused. He writes then to Father Alphonse Ratisbonne, one of the famous Jewish brothers <clears throat> who had converted and both became priests. And missionaries. Uh, and they, they founded the Congregation of Our Lady of Sion, which is important to Cohan because he has that Jewish background. And the Our Lady 
of Zion were typically Jewish converts. He says, I was advised by a friend to see a priest. This was amazing for me to do as I distrusted him, <laughs> uh, them, priests that is. However, I eventually was introduced to Father Legrand, who listened with interest, calmed me down and told me to continue as I was doing. And isn't this good advice, Francis, yes. for all of us? You know, oftentimes I think the first thing the Lord would say, we always say, oh, I want to hear from the Lord. I want to know what the Lord has to say. I think more often than not, the Lord's first words would be, calm down, <laughs> relax a little bit. <laughs> Breathe. He says, I found this churchman good and kind. He certainly changed my opinion of priests, only having known them in pages of novels where they threatened excommunication and hell fire. He says, now I had met a learned, humble man, kind and open-minded, looking to God, not to himself. So in this frame of mind, I left for Germany to give another concert. The day I arrived, it was Sunday, but Braving the ridicule of my friends, I went to Mass again. Yes, isn't that? There's that courage. You know, that call, and he's answering the call. Everything affected me, he said. The hymns, the prayers, God's invisible presence. I was very moved, and I felt the Lord touching me. When the priest raised the host, tears began to flow. It was a consoling and unforgettable moment. So again, Herman Cohen, other than being perhaps in great need, really isn't seeking this out, though the minute he begins to encounter the living God, he does continue to seek him out. And that is it. An encounter is changing him. And, you know, he does have a prayer at this time. Uh, Let me go ahead and and read the prayer because it's beautiful, and then we can close up this first half. Lord, you were there with me, filling me with your divine gifts. I really prayed to you, all-powerful and all-merciful God. And this memory of your beauty would be impressed on my inner being, Proof against all attack, together with lasting gratitude for your favors, which that's important. Um, I felt then what Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, must have felt in the Garden of Cassiacum when he heard the famous words, take and read. I remember having cried as a child, but I certainly never experienced tears like these. And while the tears flowed, a deep sorrow for my past welled up. I immediately wanted to confess everything to the Lord, all the sins of my life. There they were all before me, countless and despicable and deserving God's punishment. But at the same time, I felt a deep peace, which I think is key here. I felt a deep peace which really healed me, and I was convinced that the merciful Lord would forgive me and overlook my sins and accept my sorrow. I knew he would forgive me, recognizing my resolve to love him above all things from now on. By the time I left the church, I already felt I was a Christian, or at least as much a Christian as it is possible to be before being baptized. (laughs) Well, that's a very powerful prayer. We're actually going to come back to it and explore it a little bit. And uh, some of the other events that lead up to it, then eventually his full conversion and his entry into the Carmelite order. A reminder, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back. Here am I, that you send me I have come to do your will my delight Lord is your wisdom in the stillness of my heart here am I Send me, I have come to do your will, my dear 
to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you're currently listening to is a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations. Well, we closed uh, the first session with uh, the prayer of Herman Cohen, which sort of brought out his early experiences, Francis, of his encounter, this mystical, really mystical encounter. He doesn't even understand what's happening in his life. Something is drawing him to the Eucharist, and he doesn't even know what the Eucharist is. Right. You know, if there's a better testament to the... Uh, 
I guess, centrality and the power of the Eucharist than this story. I don't know what it is, and we could find other versions of this story, but let's get to the point. He is experiencing something in the presence of the Eucharist. He doesn't even know what it is. He said that in his early letter. He said, I didn't know what I was experiencing. I didn't know what this light in the middle of this monstrance was. I don't even know that he used the term monstrance, but he said, for some reason, there was some power emanating from this that I couldn't even identify. Now, we talked in the in the break about, you know, our perception that musicians and artists and people with a sensitive nature are probably more attuned to some of these things naturally. But that that's only, you know, the, the half of the equation. The, the real issue is the Eucharist has a capacity to transform the human person. And I think that's the central message of Herman Cohen's and, life and his conversion. And and because it's Jesus truly present in the Eucharist, it is there being offered. It's just we're not receiving or acknowledging or recognizing. Well, he has another significant event that occurs in his life, another mystical experience, if you will. He attended a baptismal reception of Jewish converts at the parish house of the Sisters of Sion, and he wished that his own reception would take place in that same location. The date for this was the 28th of August, 1847, the Feast of St. Augustine. Which he Um, takes as his patron saint. So that's where we end up in the end with Father Augustine Mary of mm -hmm. the Blessed Sacrament. So that's where Augustine... And of course, if you know the story of the conversion of St. Augustine and his mother, Monica, praying for him so much, you'll you'll be able to see the connection. Yeah, he, he lived, to say the least, a very colored, checkered, interesting life before his conversion, right? Yes. Um, so he's at this reception, and it's it's on this feast day of St. Augustine at 3 o'clock, all right? And, you know, the chapel bells are ringing, and everybody's there, and they're singing the songs. And so the priest starts pouring the holy water with the triple gestures over his forehead and proclaiming, you know, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? This he is says, how Hulk Cohen he, he describes it. He writes later, um, these are in his own words now, at that moment he says, I was deeply moved. I can only describe it as an electric shock. My eyes were closed, but I had an inner vision as if the Holy Spirit, to seal his promise, took me by the hand and revealed to my gaze, wrapped in ecstasy while directed above, that which no finite being can ever understand, the infinite, he calls it. A gentle warmth penetrated me in its spirit of the brilliant light which radiated from all sides. My gaze never tired of plunging into the rays of light. For deep within there was an even brighter light, and there stood a glorious throne, and seated on the throne was our Lord Jesus Christ, beautiful in eternal youth, with his beloved mother on his right, and around his feet a host of saints, clothed in the brightest colors of the rainbow. So he's already, he's getting a sense of heaven and recognizing it. Go ahead. Uh, um, The saints, he says, were prostrated at the foot of the throne in adoration, and yet at the same time they looked towards me and smiled kindly. Heaven and its inhabitants seemed to rejoice at my baptism, as though the poor soul of a redeemed sinner weighed in the balance of eternity. How can I be so foolish to try to describe what I saw? Indeed, I should tear up this paper on which I have written because it doesn't contain a single image remotely approaching that which I have seen. Yes, I have seen the abode of the church triumphant. Now, I don't know about you, Francis. This is pretty much the experience I had at my baptism. <laughs> <laughs> I was is, a baby, so I don't know. <laughs> well, I, my point is, I suspect we all had that experience as, our, as, as children. We just don't retain it because that's what we were. Well, and, and Cohen says, God permitted that I, the unworthy, 
be given by grace that is nameless to conceive in an instant what I hardly dare to remember. And isn't that the case so many times with something very mystical? No words can really describe. Um, you, you try to talk about it, and, and you just are speechless in, in many regards because it, it's so much more than yeah. what you say. And, and St. Benedict said had the same experience about yeah. the beauty of our Blessed Mother. Everyone who, um, if we look through the annals of the apparitions of the Blessed Mother or these events where uh, people experience Christ in, in, in a very formal vision, um, they will all say, words cannot describe, I cannot articulate in a language that is given to us as human beings what I experienced. And I think it leads a little bit to the discussion we were having about poetry and how poetry might you know, provide a source of uh, both elaborating but still hiding that mystery behind the words. Um, we're going to talk about that in a number of weeks from now. But um, this was his experience. But and, you he know, doesn't. He's going to, after this, he's like, from that day on, I'm going to follow Christ. And he says, I still have a long way to go. Although looking back, I have made great strides. <laughs> but he says, everything is due to her. He's talking about the Blessed Mother, who is the mother of us all, the, this compassionate and holy virgin, the refuge of sinners. So he's really identifying with this, whom I have prayed earnestly to every day. So we need to follow that example. Yeah, this is going to come back. And we said this at the beginning, the centrality of the Eucharist, the Eucharist, which drew him in and really uh, captivated his imagination and he couldn't get away from it. And then the second major theme in his life is the devotion to the Blessed Mother. Yeah, and he credits her with leading him to Jesus because it was in the month of May. And he says she intercedes with him before her divine son and that, um, you know, coming from the Jewish background, this was huge. This is a big leap. And so uh, after being baptized, then shortly after, he is confirmed by the Archbishop of Paris, no less. And then he is so on fire, he starts working on um, founding the Association of Nocturnal Adorers in France. Yeah, now this is actually an interesting story. It happened that it says one afternoon, the zealous convert, our very own Herman Cohen, uh, who liked to visit churches where the Blessed Sacrament was exposed. There are fewer and fewer of those, unfortunately, uh, Francis, but something we hope to change. Yes. Um, entered the chapel of the Carmelite Sisters, where the Blessed Sacrament was displayed in a monstrance for veneration. Behind the monstrance, there was a large cross enveloped in a cloth bearing the image of the Holy Face, Veronica's veil. Which we've done programs on. Yeah. You know. all, all, all of it sort of circles back. Um, I'm going to cut through the, the details here and just tell you that um, as he was uh, preparing to settle in for a late night of adoration, because uh-huh. he liked to do that, uh, the priest came in and said, I'm sorry, but you'll have to leave. <laughs> um, you uh, find that men were not allowed to uh, entertain nocturnal adoration. This was only for women. Of course, this is a Carmelite uh, 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 monastery, so uh, understandably. Uh, but nonetheless, he, he's a little um, shaken by this, I guess, and uh, immediately latches on to a mission for himself um, and uh, begins to set the stage for uh, the establishment of nocturnal adoration. And, if, and, and again, largely uh, for men, making it possible for men to and do And of this. course, the person who's influencing him also at this time is Leon 
Leon DuPont, DuPont mm-hmm. who is who we call the holy man of tours, who who we've done a program on. And so he's influencing because he's he's very much into the adoration of the Eucharist as well. So then uh, Cohen goes to his confessor and says, you know, what the problem is. And his confessor says, well, you find the men and we'll allow you to do the same thing as the sisters. <laughs> and so guess what? Um, he gathers the men in a room, and their first meeting was on the 6th of December, the Feast of St. Nicholas, in 1848, in no other church than the Church of Our Lady of Victories. Now, why is that church important? Well, there's connections there with St. Therese, the little flower, because that's the church where her family went and offered novenas for Therese's healing. And so, anyway, they begin, and there is actually a plaque in the basilica that's attached to the pillar near the altar of St. Augustine that marks this occasion of the first meeting for a night adoration and attributes it to Herman Cohen. And, you know, the other thing here is that nocturnal adoration was a great devotion of St. Therese's father, Louis Martin. And so it would not be surprising to think that maybe those two met each other. Yeah. Either way, uh, Louis Martin drew the fruit of the blessing established by Herman Cohen. And Herman Cohen himself, some years later, writes this about um, adoration, uh, nocturnal adoration. In order to contemplate you as fully as we desire, daylight hours fly by too quickly, he says. I called together some of the like-minded Christians, and we went along to spend nights in your churches, a great priest directed us, and the dawn found us still kneeling before you. What an amazing thing. What an amazing image, first of all. Um, you know, a, a group of men, we can imagine here in this case, uh, deciding that uh, early into the evening they're going to enter a chapel, and uh, unlike the way so many men in, uh, uh, in our society, and it happens still, of course, uh, enter other um, you know, buildings and, and uh, engage in night. other activities through the night. Uh, here we're talking about men entering a church and, and uh, adoring our Lord through the evening. And of course there was a lot of violence politically that was starting to happen here and so they're also praying for for that cause. Um, but you know, I, I, I just think it is so important that we also note here that it is a convert to the faith that is so on fire that, you know, he begins this. You know, f- for us cradle Catholics, sometimes I'm s- I'm a little bit taken aback that, well, 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 why didn't our cradle Catholics do this? Well, you know, he does something else. And, Francis, this is, I think, pertinent because we have talked about this in our own community, and that is the need for us as Carmelites, yes, to accept our contemplative side and our contemplative responsibilities, our our need for prayer. But he also acknowledges, um, and in fact, in his own words, he says, I should like to kindle in the hearts of my former friends the the fire which burns within me. So already he has this apostolic evangel, uh, evangelization, if you will, responsibility, and he sees it and he feels it. He wants to reach out to his former friends. And he says to them, if you no longer see me trying my utmost for applause and empty respect, it is because I have found my renown in the Eucharist. If you no longer see me wasting my resources in casinos or chasing riches, it is because I have found wealth and inexhaustible treasure in the cup of love sealed in the Eucharist. If I no longer come and drown my worries in noisy parties, it is because I am nourished at the wedding feast of the angels of heaven. 
It is because I have found true joy. Yes, I have found it, what I really love. It is mine, and no one can take it from me. Unhappy riches, cloying pleasures, honors that only debase, those are the things I looked for in your company. But now that my eyes have seen and my hands have touched and my heart has beaten on the heart of God, I can only be sorry for your blindness in pursuing pleasures that are unable to satisfy your hearts. So he says, give your heart to him who will bless you and you will taste joy so great that I cannot describe them for you unless you come and try them. Taste and see how sweet is the Lord. Yes. The King David danced before the ark which prefigured you, uh, O my true covenant. Then with what songs of triumphs ought I to break out? So we have here not just a great a convert, uh, soon to be a great Carmelite, uh, but a great preacher, someone who can really speak to the heart of people who have sought their pleasure and their joy and their consolation even, um, in the things of this world and found them as empty as Herman Cohen did, uh, and he's giving them another path. Well, and, and he's so on fire that not only does he found that nocturnal adoration, but he also, f- in 1859, founded a confraternity of thanksgiving because he's like, people are asking God for this and that, um, but they're not thanking him for what they have. And I thought that was really uh, tremendous. And, and there's a, another depth to that story, but there's so much to talk about. We're, we're going to go ahead. Um, right now, as you pointed out, he's a great preacher, but he's not a, you know, he's not in the order yet, right. but, but he has this gift and he has this calling and here's where he's, uh, starting to realize it. So he's getting hungry. He's done all these things, and he's now going to go to talk to people about the religious life. Yeah, he actually seeks out a number of um, very well-known, both in the history of the church and those who were well-known at the time in Paris. Um, he goes to Benedictine monks. He goes to Jean-Baptiste Henri Lacordier, uh, a Dominican who was in the process of reason. Of course, uh, uh, some of the great spiritual literature in the history of the church. Um, after um, him, he goes to see Julien Amard, another famous name who uh, renewed his interest. And uh, is also known for books on the Eucharist, by yes, the way. Yes, <laughs> very famous for, for a series, actually, on the, on the Eucharist. But he renews um, Herman Cohen's interest in joining the Carmelites. And to help him in this decision, he went on a retreat and there discovered the writings of St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, which prompted him through this desire to give himself completely to God in a relationship of prayer, and then eventually, of course, to join the Carmelites. Well, that reminds me of Edith Stein, or St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross. It was a book, The Life of St. Teresa of Avila, mm-hmm. that she had read, and you know, that really struck her heart. And so here he has that same thing uh, being confirmed by reading the books, the writings of John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. So he's feeling the call to the order. Now, there's a nice connection here because of his Jewish roots. So, you know, the Jewish roots of the Carmelite order. <laughs> he tries to make that case, in fact, to a, in a letter to his mother. He says, one month after his arrival, he wrote to his mother and he said, the religious order I have entered originated among the Jews 930 years before Jesus Christ. The prophet Elijah of the Old Testament founded it on Mount Carmel in Palestine. It is an order of real Jews, of children of the prophets who waited for the Messiah, who believed in him, and when he came. They have survived in our time, living in the same manner, with the same bodily deprivations, of the same spiritual joys that were there about 2,800 years ago. They still bear today the name of the order of Mount Carmel. 
Among these religious, those stemming from the reform of St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, are a separate group called the Discalced Carmelites. This is the branch that I belong to. So uh, very quickly and shortly here, he gives his mother a quick history, but says, hey, I'm still a good Jewish boy. I joined the Jewish order. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you know, uh, so many um, converts from the Jewish faith uh, call themselves um Messianic Jews, mm-hmm. um, because they're, they're building on their Jewish background. And the thing that he liked with St. Teresa of Avila is she also had those Jewish roots. Her father, I believe, was Jewish. Yes. And so, uh, the connection with St. Elijah and, and Teresa and this, uh, more rigorous, austere, uh, deep prayer, this was very attractive to him. Yeah, the mystical element. The devotion to the Eucharist and the devotion to the Blessed Mother. In fact, he says later in his writings, I had to join an order that was devoted to the Blessed Mother. Um, He follows this letter up with this statement, which I think is important for us, those of us interested in Carmel. Um, Why follow this life, he says, simply to imitate the life of Jesus when he led and came to save men through suffering, obedience, humiliation, poverty, and the cross. This is the life that I have chosen. And of course, that's the life of Carmel. Yeah, and he never has any regrets. So, um, and and there's so much more to his story. I don't know how much we want to get in. Well, let's go to the um, uh, incident of his mother's passing. I think that's very important, and it has uh, a good deal, I think, to do uh, with some of the more mystical elements of his of his life, but also um, the um, the theological virtue of right. hope. Well, so Herman Cohen, now that he knows the faith and he has joined the order um, and is in training, becoming a priest, a friar, then a priest, he is praying for the conversion of his family members. And his mother is still not happy with it. Um, So he continues to pray. And he is in the midst of preaching in France when he hears of her death, which occurred on December the 13th, which happens to be the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, Mm -hmm. another Marian date. Hint. And um, so... Uh, December the 13th, 1855. Yes, right. right. And it, it had been a disappointment that she had never embraced the faith, but he had never stopped praying for her. In fact, he wrote, he was writing to one of his friends, God had just inflicted a terrible blow on my heart. My poor mother is dead, and I am in uncertainty. All right, so see, we, we have a trial here, all right? But this is what he does with it have been offered up for her that we must hope that something special occurred between her soul and God of which we know nothing. I have been ordered to Paris to console my family. So then he goes on to share this story with the Curie of Ars, another famous personage. And and the Curie of Ars tells Cohen, well, hope, continue to hope. He said, on one day, on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, okay, that's December the 8th, you will receive a letter which will give you a great consolation. Okay, now at the time, um, you know, that, that did give him hope, but years passed, years passed. It's six years later, and guess what happens? A letter shows up on the 8th of December in 1861. A Jesuit priest gave Cohan a letter which contained a private revelation um, that said that on his mother's deathbed, that she had accepted Christ. Um, and he, the letter writer um, was a person who died in the odor of sanctity. Um, but there's a nice long quote here, um, and I, I'd like to share it with you because it, it's really beautiful. 
and it gives us hope about family members who have died who we'll be praying for. The letter writer, the, the woman, the mystic, uh, said, I was made to understand the moment that the mother of Father Herman was on the point of breathing her last, when she seemed deprived of consciousness and life was almost gone, Mary, our good mother, presented herself before her divine son and prostrating herself at his feet, said to him, Grace, mercy, O my son, for this soul that is about to perish. Another moment and it will be lost, lost for all eternity. The soul of his mother is what is dearest to him. A thousand times he has consecrated it to me. He has confided it to the tenderness, to the solicitude of my heart. Can I allow it to perish? This soul is mine. I want it. I claim it as a heritage, as the price of thy blood and of my sorrows at the foot of thy cross. Hardly had the most holy suppliant ceased to speak when a grace, strong, mighty, escaped from the source of all graces, the adorable heart of Jesus, and fell upon the soul of that poor, dying Jewish woman, and triumphed instantly over its obstinacy. The soul immediately turned with loving confidence toward him whose mercy pursued her even in the arms of death, and she said, O Jesus, God of the Christians, God whom my son adores, I believe, I hope in thee, have mercy on me. In this cry, which was heard by God alone, and which came from the lowest depths of the heart of the dying woman, there were included sincere regrets for her obstinacy and her sins, the desire of baptism, the explicit wish to receive it and to live according to the rules and precepts of our holy religion if she could return to life. This outburst of faith and hope in Jesus was the last sentiment of this soul. As she was uttering it before the throne of divine mercy, the feeble threads that still held her in her earthly tenement were broken, and she threw herself at the feet of him who had been her savior before being her judge. After having shown me all these things, our Lord added, Make this known to Father Augustine. That's Herman Cohen. It is a consolation that I wish to grant to his long sufferings in order that he may everywhere bless and cause to be blessed the goodness of my mother's heart and her power over mine. Now, she, this mystic did not know Father Herman. And so she writes this down and this Jesuit priest understands who it goes to. And it did occur on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And the reference for that story is from the uh, May 2005 edition Fatima Findings Reparation Society, Our Lady of the Rosary Library. Um, it's important. I think we have a, a reference for that, a very powerful story. But again, the central theme of it is hope, uh, as the Kudars had, had counseled Herman Cohen, don't give up hope, always put our faith in the Lord, and Keep acknowledge praying. the power of of uh, the Lord to intervene in the li- in our lives as He did in Herman Cohen's and in the lives of those of our loved ones at any time, and then our persevering um, prayer can obtain mercy. 
Well, um, I think we have enough material, Francis. We're probably going to have to continue this conversation. I don't suspect that you'll mind that. Oh, not at all, because there's so many rich things that Father Cohen has to say. So He does have a powerful message in so many ways, and we uh, will look forward to bringing more of his message to you again next week. Uh, let me just close with a brief portion of a prayer that we've identified, but we'll just do a, a brief portion of it here. Oh, Jesus, my love, I should like to kindle the hearts of my former friends, with the fire which burns within me, I should like to show them the happiness that you have given to me. If you no longer see me trying my utmost for the applause of empty respect, it is because I have found my renown in the Eucharist. We'd invite all of our listeners to seek that renown for your life in the Eucharist and in hopes that uh, both you and your loved ones will find that joy that we're all seeking, that truth that we're all seeking in this life, which we know is only found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will pray for you. We ask that you pray for us. We'll be with you again next week, continuing this wonderful conversation on the life of Herman Cohen, Carmelite Friar. And we hope someday, Francis, to be saint. Uh, until then, God bless. And reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria. Listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations.